Everyone eats out every day, but people don't think about how food arrives on the plate. This is Grounded, and I'm Lauren Mitchell. Join me as we delve deep into the challenges, expertise, and experiences of professionals and innovators in the food service industry. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators. Hey everyone, for this week's Fresh from the Field update, where we get a real pulse on what's going on in the market as far as fresh produce, I've got Stephanie File back on, our Chief Procurement Officer. Hey, Steph. Hey, Lauren. Thank you. We wanted to share a quick update on the Roma market. The next 10 to 14 days will be extremely challenging as supply out of central Mexico and Baja decrease. We expect to see industry-wide gaps in supplies. We suggest opening the Roma spec as sizing is varying. Also, another great substitution is five by six rounds. We expect to come out of this rather quickly, so two weeks at the max. On the wet veg category, most commodities are plentiful with the exception of broccolini. Lettuce and spinach are strong and quality is looking good. Great news. And there you have it. This is going to be a great episode, you guys. We've got John Barone on and I will jump right into it. Today's guest is someone who has been highly active in speaking, presenting, and educating within the food service industry for over 30 plus years. His focus on macroeconomics has helped restaurateurs understand the new and dramatic global forces that are affecting their businesses and then help them reformulate risk management solutions. He's the founder and president of Market Vision, advisory board member of NRA's Supply Chain Expert Exchange, contributing editor at Nation's Restaurant News, Hello Commodity Corner, and a real pro at indoor cycling. John Brown, welcome to the show. Hey, Lauren, how are you? Thanks for having me today. I am honored to have you on. I'm a huge fan of you and the Market Vision Conference, and we'll get into that. But um, just having conversations with you over the last couple of weeks, you are sharp and um, your your reputation follows you. So it's you're a great individual and I'm super pumped to have you on. Thanks again. You're welcome. All right. So for our listeners, I want to start the conversation linking the topic of economics to supply chain and purchasing in particular. Can we start there and have you describe what are some of the economic factors that impact purchasing? So uh, when you talk about it, the economy and purchasing uh, and overall the economy and restaurants in general, you will know, start a little bit with supply chain and, and obviously the two biggest factors affecting supply chain are, are typically uh, commodity prices, commodity inflation, and then uh, freight and logistics are, are a big, big component, component of supply chain up and down the line. So... Um, you know, commodities uh, haven't gone through the, the uh, COVID, the pandemic situation where, you know, we had very intense commodity inflation. Um, you know, we've, that's kind of dissipated for the most part. Uh, we're in good shape in a lot of commodity areas. And I just have to say the exception to that would be beef, uh, which is just just in really bad shape and likely to stay there for another couple of years. And um, and the issue with beef is, uh, you know, if any of your audience have watched the show Yellowstone, <laughs> the uh, the average age of your cattle rancher is older than Kevin Cosner. So 
you know, this is a big problem with continuity in the cattle industry going forward. Uh, nobody really wants to be in that business and uh, very difficult business. And, you know, we're coming off, um, you know, weather is such a big factor in commodities. You know, we're coming off of three years of drought where uh, if you don't have grass, you can't graze cattle and you can't make money raising cattle. So three years of drought have caused cattle producers to continually trim back their herds, liquidate. And, uh, you know, we're starting to reach record low numbers for the cattle herd, which hasn't stopped yet. We're going to continue lower through next year. And there's a possibility that we might not see that cattle herd rebound until mm, maybe 2026, 2027. I mean, you can be looking at 2027, 2028 before you see any kind of relief in beef prices. Um, and of course, um, you know, that's caused a trade down in the industry, you know, put a lot more pressure on ground beef as consumers can't afford those expensive steaks anymore. So uh, going into next year, you'll probably see ground beef prices 10% higher, maybe as much as 15% higher than in 2023. So just a really tough environment for beef. You know, the other proteins are in better shape and, um, you know, maybe one of these days it's going to be uh, lab-produced beef that gets us out of this mess. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> what you were just describing there is more going to be an impact on the cost and the price of beef and beef and less on supply, correct? Uh, well, you're going to have less supply and that's what's driving the prices higher. So okay. as you have fewer cows, you've got, you've got less available supply. Uh, the only thing that's going to keep prices down is less demand. So as prices get high enough, consumers regulate their purchases, whether it be at the retail level or whether it be, uh, you know, your $70 steak at the cap grill. But, uh, you know, at some point you get pushback, you get less demand, but people don't lose their taste for beef. So you'll see trade downs. Like we'll see trade downs in our industry from higher end restaurants to lower end. You'll see trade downs within the beef complex from higher end steaks to lower end priced uh, products. Um, the other big area of commodity concern for me is vegetable oils. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, so you're going to see uh, a weather event that's, uh, that's just coming on late this year uh, called a, a El Nino event, mm -hmm. uh, which changes weather patterns across the globe, not just in the U.S. And one of the big things associated with pastel ninos has been uh, palm oil prices in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia. They get a lot less rain. They're very monsoon dependent on their rainfall. And uh, drought there uh, that cuts back on palm oil production uh, is very correlated to soybean oil prices in the U.S. So what we're putting in our deep fryers, you know, uh, is more of a global market than a domestic market. And then the other factor in vegetable oils is uh, we've recently perfected a technique to uh, to transform vegetable oil into renewable diesel. It used to be uh, we would have, um, you know, corn-based ethanol, 10% is in our gasoline right now. On the diesel side, you might be able to get 5, 10, 15% vegetable oil into diesel. 
Uh, it was called biodiesel. It was a different product. Um, you know, they experimented it with school buses up in Minnesota and the stuff, you know, uh, coagulated during the winter and the buses didn't run. So, uh, but currently the reformulated diesel they're using right now from vegetable oil can be a hundred percent vegetable oil. And they are using it in California because it meets their EPA standards out there. So, um, a big jump in soybean oil usage for uh, renewable diesel plus potential issues with El Nino uh, and foreign-based uh, vegetable oils could could impact. Uh, I mean, we're double where we were maybe four or five years ago and uh, and looks, it could potentially get worse from here. So the, those are the two commodity areas I'm, I'm particularly concerned about for next year. So question there. So and and this is this is all sounding very familiar, and I think why people value hearing from you so much is is your um, understanding of the commodity markets, and then cautionary for the year ahead on specific items. Can you give an example, or do you know of ways that people then take the information and apply it? Is it really just important just to be aware, or um, have you heard of case examples where, for example, with beef, people will make a legitimate reduction in their menu and switch to another protein as a result? Well. Well, you're going to see probably within the beef complex, you know, uh, a little bit of a trade down on steak products where you can take maybe a little bit less than choice steak item, marinate it, do something to it. Uh, you'll see creativity within menus for people who have to stay in the beef complex. Mm -hmm. um, the burger guys, um, they're always looking for new and interesting ways and new sources to get trimmings from overseas. Uh, we had been getting a lot of lean 90% trimmings from Australia. Uh, it was, was a pretty good year for Australia, but, um, you know, that'll taper off a little bit next year. So um, we're looking for South America. We're looking for other places in the world for beef trimmings to support what we have here. But, you know, less cattle supply here in a particular, um, we grow a lot of really fat cattle here which gives us fat trimmings, 50% trimmings, uh, or lean 90% trimmings, which you need to make ground beef uh, come predominantly from overseas and from dairy cows that have seen their better days. So, um, you know, we're limited on supply. We don't grow cows or cattle specifically for lean trimmings, and, and that will be a problem going forward. So for planning, uh, you know, people who can, uh, menu, um, uh, vary, uh, vary their menus within the protein category. You'll probably see more pork and chicken, um, have a feeling the alternate, I, I get this feeling. I don't have stats, you know, I just see what, how companies are performing, but I get the feeling that the alternate meat category has kind of plateaued a bit, uh, right. that you're going to see. Some of the players that maybe need to work on their ingredient mix a little bit uh, seem to be having some problems. Some of the the smaller ingredient, pure, um, you know, uh, more real food players uh, may gain some traction in that category. But it is a big shakeout going on. So you know, you had a big demand up front, and then. You know, consumers seem to have backed off and say it's no big deal and it's expensive. And if I want a burger, I'll eat a burger. Um, we'll see. You know, we'll see where that goes. Um, 
I've uh, on some of the chicken nugget products, you know, I don't seem to be able to tell the difference, to be honest with you. Uh, some of them are very good. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what's going forward with, uh, with protein. Sure. All right. So historically, year over year, Q4 is a challenging freight um, market. And a lot of people point to different reasons why the, 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 the transfer of goods for the holiday season across the U.S., the up and down of Christmas trees and trucks across <laughs> the U.S. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about what to expect for freight and logistics, either for, for Q4 or just early 2024 that, that you know to be true? And, and for those that may not be totally clear on why this is important for food service, of course, you know, this is all of the products, take lettuce for an example, that start in Salinas, need to eventually get to our restaurants up in the Northeast. Um, everything is, is, is moved across the U.S. by trucks and it's an important part of distribution and getting things um, around and through into our restaurants and grocery stores. So um, this is this is a big piece to the whole process, and and it's always important right next to commodities. We get an update on this as well. Uh, every stage of the supply chain, you know, from from producer to processor to distributor to your restaurants, however many pieces there are in between, you're compounding it every time you have to put a product on a truck with us. Great. And we, you know, not even to mention driver shortages and that whole issue, which is, we'll probably talk about at another time. But, you know, uh, I, I think it's important for people to understand on freight. And let's go back to fuel uh, as, as driving part of that freight. I mean, actually part of the freight's, you know, labor and, and uh, capacity and availability also. But you talk about, uh, you know, my expertise area, which, you know, which would be energy and commodities. Um, you know, we're still, no matter how much oil we produce in the U S we're still victims of what, you know, goes on globally and geopolitically. And twice this year, Saudi Arabia and Russia chose, chose to cut back on oil supplies in an attempt to raise world oil prices and in globally traded markets, regardless of what we produce here in the U S. Yeah, what happens in one country or one part of the world affects prices globally. Uh, and there's there's just no way around that. Thank you. So beef, <laughs> vegetable oil, diesel, which is not equal to gasoline. Um, we're starting to kind of make the big picture real here. And I love that. And I just, this is exactly what I was hoping for this conversation. I mean, it's always mind blowing to me how you can really connect the dots. Let's let's fly down into the restaurant space for a moment as we're talking about 2024. Um, you know, what does labor and wages look like for that piece? And is there a single indicator that people can follow over the course of 2024? So rather than just kind of getting an update at the beginning of the year, what is something that they may be able to pay to to kind of understand more about the reality of what what can be or what is going on? You know, I feel that we got in incredibly lucky in 2023. I mean, a lot of, uh, you go back to the beginning of the year, a lot of economic forecasters predicting recession this year, and it didn't happen. Right. It didn't happen because labor markets stayed strong. Uh, people did not stop hiring. Um, and yeah, I kind of had, it was interesting, um, you know, the tech industry and, and finance industry were really hot for a while. And then when they kind of plateaued and started laying people off, 
It allowed other industries like hospitality to kind of catch up a little bit. We're still not quite there yet. You know, we're still, uh, if you, you ask, particularly, uh, I think corporate level, you know, we've gotten pretty good, but if you talk to small business owners and franchisees, they're still having trouble staffing up, uh, you know, whether they're paying a little bit less or, you know, they're in a di little bit different environment with, in terms of what resources they have. So anyway, um, you know, very strong labor market this year, uh, and, and consumer spending was just crazy. Uh, you know, I, I can, I attribute some of this to the, 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 uh, Taylor Swift and Barbie summer, <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny, but, uh, you know, particularly, uh, younger, younger adults, um, got into this experience spending thing where, you know, they're going to splurge on travel and they're going to splurge on concerts and they're going to splurge on maybe a high-end restaurant once in a while. I don't know whether it was just the thing to do. I don't know if it was spend it now while you got it. I'm not quite sure what the mentality behind it was, but it definitely drove, uh, the economy through the summer, um, really good third quarter and, um, you know, it's going to carry us, us for the year. Can it continue? It's going to be really difficult. I mean, if you look at, um, people who are, let's say 50 and up and their mortgages are locked in at lower rates and, you know, maybe kids are, maybe they're getting done with college, helping out with college tuitions, or maybe, you know, they're moving on to a different phase of their life and have had time to build up their stock portfolios. These people have wealth. These people can continue spending money. If you look at the group that's on the outside that maybe got shut out of the housing market, that maybe had got into a little credit card spending, this is a group that's going to have a lot of difficulty in 2024. Um, you know, interest rate, the, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates 11 times since the beginning of last year with, wow. the, pur with the purpose of trying to control inflation. So that's about five and a quarter percentage points that they're up. Um, and that's done things like, uh, for example, credit card, average credit card interest in 2015 was 12%. Average credit card interest right now is 24.5%, and that's average. If you do not have a good credit score, you're probably paying 27, 28%. Um, those are um, loan sharking numbers in, in my head. You know, I, it, it's hard to believe that's even legal. You get in a hole with your credit cards, you miss a few payments. I mean, and you're just, it's the balloon. I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, if you, you miss the boat that you should be paying these cards off every month, you, you can get in trouble in a hurry and it's really hard to get out of it. So, um, I had some stats here, but young, most younger Americans are, I think they, uh, I think federal reserve in New York said 73% of millennials are living paycheck to paycheck and most of them have some credit card debt. So I think that type of spending is going to be hard to carry forward for that group of people. They've also getting hit with the resumption of uh, college loan payments. Um, and, um, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people out there in their 50s and 60s that may have young adults living at home with them, right? Yes. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, I'm not sure going forward, uh, you know, that segment's going to have to be offset by the older segment. And, you know, depending on who's spending money is a big deciding factor to how restaurants market their menus and who they market to. So that's something uh, for the, uh, not for the supply chain people, but for the, you know, the marketing and uh, demographics people that keep a really close eye on going into uh, 2024 as to who's spending money. You know, you look at things uh, on the inflation side, the average monthly car payment in pre-COVID in 2019 uh, was about 550 a month. And that's up to 736 in the third quarter. So just big. I, I mean, that's got to be close to a 50% increase in the cost of uh, car ownership. And then if you look at the uh, median U.S. home price, not the average, the median, middle, you know, to take out, you know, you want to take out those big mansions that skew, skew the average too high. Uh, median U.S. home price is 430000 um, That requires an $86,000 down payment to get your 20% down payment. That's a big, big number for most people. Um, the mortgage on that median house uh, was, uh, I have 1460 per month at 3%, you know, it's a thousand dollars a month higher at seven and a half percent. So I, I, you know, if you were out of that market and are trying to get into it now or trying to buy a home, a very unaffordable situation right now. And a mortgage for that median uh, house price is going to require an income of 115,000 a year. So, uh, you know, there, I'm not sure how many, you know, young Americans, you know, can, can handle something like that to get into the housing market. Maybe a lot of them are just giving up on that idea. So some, some things that are coming to my mind. So I love, I love the, the picture that you've painted here is specifically in, in regards to understanding who is spending their men, their money, um, and, 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 and how that changes by generation with young Americans. Do you find, is this going to push them more into retail and, and cook from home? And how does that sector look? Or is it more QSR drive through just, you know, there, it's not so much of a dining experience, but rather just the the quick, the quick hit for a meal. How does that trickle down for specifically kind of the generation X, the younger population that, you know, either is living with their parents or they are trying to make, um, save up to, to, to buy the, the $435,000 house or 235. So where do you see them going and spending their money as it regards to food? I mean, if you're 30 and living at home and have a decent job and you're making money and you're really doesn't matter if you have a little credit card debt, you've got disposable income, you've got a subsidized living situation, you're going to be able to spend money. So, you know, maybe that'll help drive it a little bit. Um, you know, I'm not a demographic expert, but, you know, in ups and downs, you see people trading up and trading down. Um, and restaurants are well aware of this. Uh, when McDonald's says that uh, they've compensated for the loss of lower income customers by replacing them with higher income customers. Mm -hmm. That gives you an idea that there's a lot of um, uh, jumping around and trading around going on with uh, with the industry. 
And, and we all know, I mean, it's been stated a zillion times that the pandemic really, really accelerated this whole idea of either eating at home or eating in my car, eating anywhere other than sitting down in the restaurant. I'm not that sure. I'm not sure that's just antisocial personality or that's just people that, you know, want to grab and go and, and want to multitask. So it just seems to be uh, a sign at the times of, uh, you know, we've accelerated into a, a new level and it it's not, it's not going backwards. All right. So I'm going to transition here a little bit mm -hmm. out of spending and um, maybe towards, let's call it spending time and, and specifically spending our time in the supply chain industry. Executives recognize the role of purchasing in driving growth and revenues and margins. And, and a quick pathway to doing this is to reduce cost. Uh, from my perspective, one way to reduce costs is having a very strong collaboration or relationship with your suppliers. Knowing the components of cost um, to your products is really informed by talking deeply with your suppliers about the, the, the paths the products take and what's, you know, what are the components to the cost. Um, when I started in this industry, I had a business development role specifically to acquire um, national chain accounts for um, their produce business. And that's contracting produce goods, but also the distribution of their produce goods. Um, my company sent me to Market Vision. And, and this particular one <laughs> happened to be the first conference actually after COVID. It was in Palm Springs and it was in March. My boss was arriving a day late. So I got to go to the, the kickoff cocktail event completely by myself. And this was a hotel that has all the rooms surrounding a courtyard. Again, it's in Palm Springs. So the, the weather is conducive to having just kind of that structure where you walk out of your room and you're staring down into the hotel courtyard. I look down there and there's about, I, I don't know, it had to be between 200 or 300 people at the bar for the cocktail party. And I had a pit in my stomach because I could confidently say I didn't know one person in that group because, again, new to the job, new to the industry, came from distribution, but this was a full new experience for me. And I took a picture because I thought this is going to, I just, I know I'm going to remember this moment. And I mean, it's, it's another thing that I'm talking to you here today um, to describe this, but I, I'm saying this because by the end of the event, I looked back at that picture and I felt like I had a relationship with almost every single person in it. And the event's only two or three days. Um, I've come to go to, to many since then. And I recognize that these are the right people all in the same place and that you've produced an event that actually draws people with that much talent and experience in the industry to show up even twice a year, multiple times. Um, year over year and not send other people. It's just, it's valuable for them. I, I want to know from you, you're the founder of the president, you know, what, what enabled you to start it and what is your goal with this event for people that may not be familiar with market vision and perhaps, um, you know, a great, a great candidate to attend here in the spring of next year. Um, it, you know, I, I wish I could take like really, you know, say I had this great plan and, and, you know, was this genius that put this thing together, uh, but really started as a, a much smaller event, um, you know, recognizing the needs for people needed economic and commodity information. Yeah. And this was an efficient way to get them to get it to them. Uh, you know, I publish weekly and monthly, um, you know, commodity pieces and, you know, it, it kind of just, just all fit together. But 
you know, we noticed that the conference kind of grew organically. That was an organic event because our sponsored function hadn't even started yet, which was outside. <laughs> so that was the reunion effect of people looking forward to seeing each other. You know, the venue was chosen because it had that big central bar, which people gravitate to. And starting like that was probably registration day. Yep. And starting at like four o'clock in the afternoon, people started gathering at that bar. We didn't start outside until 630 that night. So, you know, to have that kind of momentum going with the event where people are just literally gathering on their own. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I will say is we noticed coming out of COVID that the audience had a lot of turnover. We were seeing a lot of new people, a lot of the same companies, but a lot of new people. And the audience got much younger. And we made some adjustments uh, by really going out and trying to pull in and cater to people who, like yourself, may have been attending their first event and were a little bit intimidated and might actually be a lot younger than you are. <laughs> there are quite a few, you know, uh, uh, category managers post COVID that have come in, very smart people that have come in from other industries and just don't know anybody. So, nice. you know, we, we've done a, you know, uh, gone out of our way to reach out to new attendees and younger attendees to get them together ahead of time, to get them to meet each other, you know, giving people to hang around with, uh, cause our goal with that conference, uh, now which has kind of matured or kind of developed over the years is we realized we had something special and to continue to build and foster that supply chain community mm -hmm. because um, the, the networking, not only with your suppliers, but with your peers yields a lot of unseen benefits. I mean, you know, uh, supply chain people really do share. Um, you know, a lot of them have similar problems that they're working on, uh, you know, they'll share ideas, they'll share solutions, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, call each other up, you know, how'd you deal with this? I have this problem. I have that problem. And, and the sooner you can take advantage of those, you know, those new relationships or those new friends, you know, you could, you'd be much more efficient at what you're doing. So we're just trying to trying to nurture that, trying to force that, trying to be as inclusive as possible. So what John's referencing there is he does keep track of a ratio between the suppliers and the operators. And again, that's what keeps it a very intimate, well-balanced event. Um, again, having to spend the beginning part of my career, at least in the business development side and trying to get to know these brands and reaching out by, by email, the, the whole roof was blown off when I was able to make personal connections with these people who do change and jump um, from from brand to brand. So you 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 build that relationship with them, and then you feel um, and it, able to just reach out and talk. And you know, certainly there's challenges in this industry left and right. So being able to problem solve and troubleshoot things together, um, it's just so valuable. And it all starts again with just being in person together, which. I don't think that part of the business of meetings is ever going to change. It's just that's the most valuable way to to kind of build that base. Yeah. And, and what I try to preach to particularly to the emerging brands and to the mid-sized chains is it's it's very 
interesting when somebody comes into the industry on the supply chain side and a million suppliers want to be their best friend. You know, it could be very ego inflating. It could be very overwhelming. Uh, but what I try to tell people is you need to get on a supplier's radar screen, even though they seem to be pursuing you, they need to understand where your business is, where your business is going and how valuable of a customer you might potentially be to them to get the, I would say the most attention from them and possibly the best deals. I mean, not everybody's got a best deal to give everyone, you know, they might have three, four, five favorite customers who are, you know, very important pieces of business to them. And they might not be always be the biggest chains, you know, they're, there's always going to be lower margins with the biggest chains. Sometimes the sweet spot's a little bit below that. And um, the other thing along those lines, what's, what's been going on lately is not only manufacturers, processors, but particularly distributors are having capacity issues. Mm. And, you know, where we used to pick and choose and put out RFPs and, and, and kind of control things from a customer. And, uh, right now it's, uh, it's more, um, uh, I, I've heard the term recently, uh, of becoming a customer of choice. And, um, you know, that means not only having the relationship with your supplier, but going beyond that relationship to making sure that additional people up the chain in your organization have a little bit of relationship with additional people going up the chain on the other side that you understand each other's numbers a little bit better. Uh, regardless of your relationship, nobody wants your business if they're not making money on it. Uh, and that's not just price. That's understanding logistically and in terms of lots of other little things. Um, you know, how can I be the best customer? How's that going to, and will that help me get a better deal? Or will that just help me cement that relationship that I might need down the road somewhere? Like everybody needed when COVID broke loose and there was no capacity and basically the best customers got supply and a lot of other people didn't. So, you know, um, you know, the relationships I think, which are, uh, forged at person to person meetings and forged with individual meetings, I think go a long way. And then you've got to extend those relationships up and down the line and build relationships between companies. Cause unfortunately people do turn over quite a bit. So you also sit on the advisory board for the NRA and have been for over a decade. Tell us a little bit about this experience and who they are and how you even gotten in, got involved with the group to start. So it's a very interesting experience for me. Um, the National Association, a National Restaurant Association had always had a supply chain managers group and maybe about 14 years ago, that group kind of fell apart. Uh, they pulled away from the restaurant association. They tried to affiliate with another organization. They still tried to run meetings, in, you know, around the time of the national restaurant show and it, and it just kind of fell apart on them. Uh, about 12 years ago or so, um, David Parsley, who at that time was the, um, VP of supply chain for the Applebee's IHOP co-op. Uh, later went on to uh, run Brinker's supply chain, uh, came to me and said that 
uh, he had talked to Don Sweeney, who was president of the NRA at the time, and you know, had formulated a plan to put the supply chain group back together and that they wanted to run a fall meeting. And the problem with them running a fall meeting is I was running a fall meeting that had most of the supply chain attendees that they would like to attend to be at their events. I'll have to say it's been a wonderful experience. Um, they have a board comprised of, uh, I think they've got about, I think they have 12 actual board members right now who represent some of the uh, biggest chains in the country. And then they have an advisory council of uh, a couple of consultants like myself and um, some of their supplier sponsors who contribute things that maybe you don't understand as well if you're just on the supply chain side of the industry. So it's been a, it's been a, uh, it's been a, a good experience for me. Uh, they're a really good group. Um, and, uh, I have to say that, uh, they run an event the day before mine in the fall in Orlando, and they also run an event for two days before the NRA show, show starts in Chicago in May. And for peer to peer networking, I find that it's, it's probably one of the best events in the industry. I had the opportunity to attend the expert exchange last spring and, and some of the breakout groups that we did to your point where you're working with other operators to problem solve. Um, we, we talked about topics like sustainability and equity inclusion and how to include and how to just, you know, tweak these, but it was so fun to work with, um, problem solving with folks across brands and companies to, to do it that are all part of the same industry. I mean, it just, it was the, the, the ultimate melting pot for for talent and, and backgrounds because as you know to tackle some of those problems it really helps to have that just breadth and depth of experience um and perspective so um yes love that group okay um i want to get into a little bit about you personally and ask no some business leadership uh questions um i'm going to share a quote that was said about you because i thought it was pretty right on and um, it said, if trust matters to you, you'll keep company with John Brown. John's got the technology down, the smarts, the experience, the creativity, no small points, any one of them. But the biggest mover in business in life is zooming through with a kind of persistent confidence, knowing in your gut that the floor in front of you is not going to cave in and the leap you're about to make is going to land you on sure ground. I'll move ahead and make great leaps anytime if John is involved. Pretty wow. awesome. Yes. Pretty <laughs> awesome thing to be said about you. Um, and, and I'm sure you know the individual who said this, Jan, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch the, the last name. So apologies there. But can I just ask, and for anyone listening that is a leader in their space, what does it take to keep you truly sharp? And if you don't want to answer for yourself, you know, how can you, how can someone, how can you apply the question for someone else who just specifically in this industry and space, how do you stay sharp? How do you personally attack, um, you know, day to day with, with the confidence that you do? You, I don't, it doesn't matter what you do in life. Um, I, I mean, you have to have a passion for it. And I know people say that, you know, loosely, I probably spend about two hours every morning, you know, combing through, you know, everything from The Economist to The Wall Street Journal, Times, Washington Post, you name it, you know, industry publications. It's how I start my day 
every day, Amar Farley. That's the first piece that goes with coffee. And thank God now it's not a pile of papers on my desk. It's on my iPad and it's very e much easier to do. Uh, but, you know, I just have that thirst. Mm. And then like, you know, you see in my whole career, I think the success has been taking a lot of stuff that people kind of know about, but they don't really understand in depth or don't have time to get into. Take it distill it down to something understandable and connect it to other stuff. How's this affecting this, this, and this? And, you know, that's been um, the basics of most of my presentations. And, you know, it's been a lot of trial and error over the years. Um, I'm not naturally a person that likes to get up on stage, but I've gotten used to it and I've got to do it. So I do it. Uh, but I do really enjoy sharing that kind of stuff. And if you're like an opinionated kind of person that likes to have an audience, um, you know, I have to sell it, get up on stage with a lot of people out there and I've got the mic and they're going to hear what I have to think about it for about an hour <laughs> with no chance to respond, which is even more fun. Yeah. And then of course I break down afterwards and get into a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. But, um, you know, uh, you, you read something and either it makes sense or it doesn't make sense, doesn't make sense. You know, I have to follow it up to see if it's true or not. Um, makes sense. You know, it sometimes sets off a light bulb of how it's connected. Oh, that's why this and this. Right. Let me make a note on that because I'd like to expound on that later. And, you know, that's kind of what, um, you know, my business kind of has developed from what I enjoy doing. A lot of people don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't happen, you know, by accident. I mean, I tried to mold, you know, my future based on what I thought I did the best and what I enjoyed doing the most. And I think that's what people see if, if I'm up on stage. I mean, I get passionate about things. I get emotional about things. Um, I have cried on stage. Uh, I just, you know, it, it's who I am. And I, I think people like sometimes can't believe, I can't believe John did that. I can't believe John said that, you know, but, um, you know, all in a good way. I mean, at the end of the day, I have, you know, I, I can be a little out there at times. I, I have been told that, you know, um, my staff has winced at a few things, he said. but, uh, I, I think that's what makes you know, um, kind of call it, uh, edutainment, you know, where you have to educate yeah. people, but you have to, you know, you have to engage them first and hold their interest. And, you know, uh, one of my favorite, uh, reviews I got from one of my presentations was, um, and this was it, it was just one line It said, uh, Barone's presentation solid as usual. Uh, oh, Barone's presentation solid. Jokes corny as usual, <laughs> which was okay. I can live with that. You know? Yeah. All right. Kind of a tough question, but uh, I want you to think about it. In, in regards to your role as president, specifically of Market Vision, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> so it's funny. Um, uh, prior to COVID, uh, you know, I lived through 9-11 and ran a meeting about 
five weeks after 9-11 in, in Orlando with next to no people there. And, um, you know, I figured, you know, things like hurricane in, in Orlando, um, uh, you know, earthquake in California, uh, you know, you, you, you go through your head and you try to plan for things that will disrupt or cancel a meeting, you know, which is so big a part of what we do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, never did I think a disease yeah. would, would knock us out of business. But, um, you know, in 2020, we were only about, we we're less than a month out from our spring event and we had all the sponsorship money in and all, you know, all kinds of money spent on marketing and, and salaries and everything you go through. We had done everything except for execute the event. And then not only did we have to cancel it, but I owed a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had a zillion suppliers that were due refunds because we didn't run the event. And hey, mo a lot of that money was spent marketing, putting the conference together and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, um, it's a testament to our industry and to my relationships that literally almost everyone we work with took a credit towards a future event and kept my cash flow going. Uh, it ju just amazed me. I mean, I only had maybe two, three people that absolutely, you know, CFO or whatever said they had to, had to have a refund because they didn't know yeah, where it was going or where they'd be involved in the future. And then some of the people spent that money on virtual events, which actually I thought were really good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, I mean, we, we, we ran a couple of, of virtual events that, you know, some of the old school guys that are in my age bracket that like literally can't sell unless they're face to face and put a product in your face, uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't or wouldn't do it. But a lot of younger people, a lot of marketing people. Uh, you know, a lot of people who were in a different mindset were like, oh yeah, well, this looks cool. Let's try this, you know? And then I had to talk with a lot of company presidents and a lot of people of, you know, why I think it thought it would be successful. And I had, had to admit to some of them, I had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, we we're going to give it a shot. And if they wanted their money back afterwards, I'd give it to them. So, um, what was interesting, I, I mean, we ran a zoom day ahead of the actual online event. I had one company call me and said, we had 68 calls on that first day. I said, how did you do that? She said, we took our whole marketing and sales staff and, and we had a list of, I mean, because it was virtual, you know, our usual attendee list, it was about double usual because, you know, companies signed up their entire supply chain people. They didn't have to pay for travel. They didn't have to pay for anything. Um, they didn't have to have people out of office. So we, you know, we had a list of about 450 customers and, you know, they said, Hey, we just divvied up that list and, and schedule as many calls as we possibly could. It, it was probably twice as many contacts as we get from the live conference. So, you know, um, you, you, you would just, you do what you have to do. Um, but, uh, I, I would say that, you know, a, a resurgence of COVID definitely keeps me up at night and having lived through a year and a half of, uh, without live meetings, um, 
and, you know, all our eggs kind of being in those baskets these days, that does keep me awake at night. Perhaps that disruption, though, and again, I always say this, but, it, you know, the challenges ultimately lead to, to new opportunities. And I would say that although that that was devastating for especially the event and in-person business and those in the business of in-person meetings and conferences, it's now it recharged and supercharged the value of the events, you know, and it's in the return space that we're in now. Right. So people um Perhaps or maybe more selective, but when they show up, they want to stay and they want to be because they've made the investment to be there. Um, so I, I would argue that it's also it's tremendously it, worked for you now following. It it was head clearing for a lot of people, you know, who were badgered to go to a zillion different events right. to to sit back and take stock of how they spent their time. And when they sure. did come back, we've been very lucky that. We were one of the meetings I think that was picked to to focus on because um, we we've just last year and this year our numbers have just been crazy. I mean I can't even believe where we're at right now. So um, I don't know why I'm not arguing. Yeah, you take the good with the bad. Yeah, we had some bad. Now we've got some good, and 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 it's all good for us right now. So uh, so John outside of work, yeah. John, outside of work, I, I, I saw this number 18 years of youth soccer and basketball coaching I'm, as a as a soccer mom right now. That is, I've, my hat goes so far off to coaches and youth sports and especially those that are working through that and volunteer their time or just are there after work for the kids. I That's the moments that make me teary, actually, is watching coaches on one knee down talking to a child and, and showing them the game. So I have so much respect for the time that you've dedicated to that. I just... I don't know. I know, you know, regardless of my knowledge of the games, like I played football in high school and college and I, you know, I had to go and get multiple coaching licenses to learn how to play the game. But I just had a touch with kids and I'd get calls. John, can you coach this team? John, can you help uh, us with this? And, you know, it was, um, it was something I just really enjoyed doing. And I am a kid at heart. So, I mean, I am, and my practices were always organized chaos. And I used to always tell moms like you, you know, that had sons, you know, hey, don't take away from him the things he's going to need to be successful later in life, which is, you know, kind of letting loose a little bit and exploring and you know, letting that energy out and, and building his confidence and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's all good. It was a very enjoyable time in my life. Yeah. Is it true that your only bike accident was in your house? Uh, embarrassing to say. Um, for all the road biking and mountain biking I do, um, about two years ago, just before New Year's, um, have an indoor bike set up with um, uh, bikes connected to a trainer. I use the Zwift app on my iPad. You know, I ride with people from all over the country. And um, what I didn't realize is outside when, when, you know, I'm clipped in and standing up on the bike, climbing a hill that I tend to rock the bike back and forth. And I guess I was doing that subconsciously indoors. And the bike came loose and fell over sideways, which nine times out of 10 would not have been a problem because I would have landed on an exercise mat in our exercise room. Uh, Janine's into her ballet. She's got stuff set up all over the place. But 
my uh, my son from North Carolina just happened to be home for the holidays and left a kettlebell right in the middle of the floor, and that's what I hit. So, um, you know, it's funny. The better part of the story is that having had rib injuries in the past, I didn't think much of, of it other than it hurt like hell and I was having trouble breathing. And Janine says to me, well, what are we going to do this afternoon? And like, I'm in so much pain. I'm like, what are you talking about? She says, well, we've got Broadway show tickets, you know, that she had bought me for Christmas. And it was like Lehman Brothers trilogy, limited performance. If we didn't see it, I was never going to get to see it. So I said to her, well, if I can get in and out of the shower, we'll go. And I got myself in and out of the shower, went through a three hour show, got home later that night. I'm like, really, really don't feel well. There's something's not right. So, you know, I self-medicate with a bourbon or two and, you know, call the doctor the next morning, which is next morning is New Year's Eve and they can't get me in anywhere for an x-ray. So they tell me to go to emergency. And this is like the height of that Omicron COVID thing. So I'm like, I'm going to hospitals. They're like crazy right now with, with COVID patients. So you know, I don't go New Year's Eve. I can't get in anywhere New Year's Day. Now it's the day after New Year's. I go in for my chest, for my x-ray, and I've got two dislocated lids and a collapsed lung. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I go straight to the hospital, you know, four hours in uh, waiting to get in, you know, and then they keep me overnight. And, and um, you know, I, I did the... Uh, uh, Radiology guy says to me, you're my favorite patient today. And I'm like, and why is that? He says, you're my first non-COVID chest oh. x-ray in two weeks. So um, they sent me home because they needed the bed for other people. But, uh, you know, doctor said to me, he said, well, he said, we'd be putting a hole in your chest and reinflating your lung. But since it's four days later, it's recovered on its own. You're a very lucky man. And I say, this is why, this is why, this is why women live longer than men. (laughs) Because regardless of the age, we think we're indestructible. So, yes. Oh, and I will add that it was exactly the same month that the uh, Mayhem ad came out for the insurance company where the guy rides himself off the indoor bike and through the glass (laughs) window. So, yeah, my kids had a lot of fun sending that video to everybody when they asked them what happened to their dad. Oh, we're going to have to include that in the show notes. In addition to uh, <laughs> all things about how people can get a hold of you to wrap up the show, I want to make sure that if people have a question um, in regards to a commodity or the conference um, or anything economics, how can they get a hold of you or how would you prefer to be reached? Oh, yeah. Free consulting at my email address. Why not? So uh, you can go on my le- my website it, if you uh, Google Market Vision or it's mktvsn.com. Uh, you, my contact information is up there for anybody that wants to reach out to me or anybody on my staff. Uh, if you're interested in our conference, that would be Janet Cohen. If you're a chain that needs more information, it's Joan Axelrod. Uh, registration is Kim Ramola. And uh, our PR person is my lovely significant other Janine Genauer. So, you know, that's our team. We do a great job. Uh, we, we 
We're inundated right now post-conference with people who heard about it and want to come, which is great, mm. but it's put us behind a little, up behind the April a little bit on getting back to people. So, uh, and I assume welcome. you're on LinkedIn too? On LinkedIn, absolutely. Thank you, John, for coming on today. But thank you so much. This has been fun. We had a few laughs. <laughs> and to our audience, thank you so much. If you learned something today or laughed, please tell someone about this podcast. Um, again, this was John Barone. We are um, just so fortunate to have you on and, and continue to learn from you year, year over year. So thanks for doing all that you do, John. Love it. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up another episode. We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining. For show notes and our most updated market report, visit us at groundedthepod.com. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators by leveraging technology, talent, and an insatiable appetite to improve. 